G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman and the case we're looking at today went over four judgments and we're going to branch it into two separate episodes because there were so many interesting details about this case that I really didn't want to cut too much out. So in this episode, we're going to cover the original judgment and then in the next episode, we'll look at the appeal. Many people die without a will. If recent studies are to be believed, more than half the population of Australia will die without a will. We've spoken about this before, that if you die without a will, this is called dying intestate, and the rules of intestacy will determine who receives your estate on your death. So speaking in very general terms, if you die without a will but you have a spouse, everything goes to your spouse. If you don't have a spouse but you have children, it's divided equally between the children. If any child dies before you, their share goes down to their children. If you die without a spouse or children, it goes to parents, if not them, siblings, if not them, nieces, nephews, there's a whole hierarchy. And sometimes that hierarchy might not be appropriate for the administration of an estate. Can you do anything about it or do you just have to wait until a person dies and then try to fix this thing that happens? Well, in New South Wales, if a person has lost capacity to do a will, an interested party can apply to the Supreme Court for what is called a statutory will. A statutory will may be warranted where a person does not have capacity to make a will for themselves and has either never done a will before, or has a will that is no longer suitable. The Supreme Court has power to authorise a will to be made, or for an existing will to be altered or revoked, on behalf of the person who no longer has testamentary capacity. This case is a really good example of the difficult questions that need to be determined when seeking a statutory will. It also involves the estate of the woman who was once known as the richest woman in Australia. As I said, there were appeals, so it's a bit of a roller coaster, but let's ride it together. In this episode, we're looking at the judgment MP's Statutory Will, 2019, New South Wales Supreme Court 331. In 2019, Anthony Small applied to the Supreme Court wanting the court to make a will for his then 90-year-old grandmother, Millie Phillips. Millie Phillips had definitely lost capacity to do a new will, and there was a question about whether she had a will or not. Who was Millie Phillips? Millie Phillips, a Holocaust survivor, moved to Australia from Poland when she was a child, and went on to become the richest woman in Australia. She was a self-made millionaire, starting with setting up a small boarding house in Ashfield, Sydney, in the early 1960s, and investing in tin mine in 1969. She amassed a staggering wealth during the nickel boom and became the head of the International Mining Corporation. Millie lived what some might call a controversial life, and often came to media attention. In 1974, she was charged with insider trading, but the case was later dropped. As well as her involvement in mining, she also later became involved 
and owned and managed nursing homes. In 2008, she was a party in an inquest into the death of Donald Fairbairn. Donald had been a resident at a nursing home owned by Millie Phillips. An inquest was held into Donald's death after a nurse allegedly injected him with 10 times his prescribed dose of insulin. The court heard Millie verbally attack Mr. Fairbairn's daughter, telling her, quote, This is your fault we're having this inquest. He was old and going to die. You're not going to get any money. He was worth nothing. He was old and sick anyway. End quote. Millie was banned from attending the rest of the inquest. Millie's personal life was also wrought with conflict. She had long been divorced from her husband. She had had three children, but one of them sadly died. Her daughter Lynette was a member of the Ananda Marga sect. Ananda Marga, or the Path of Bliss, is a worldwide socio-spiritual organisation founded in India in 1955. It is also the name of the philosophy and lifestyle described as a practical means of personal development and the transformation of society. According to Wikipedia, the basis of Anandamaga practice is covered by a set of rules called the 16 points that guide the practitioner on both spiritual and social aspects. The goal of Anandamaga is self-realization and the welfare of all. In 1978, Lynette died having set herself on fire as an act of self-immolation outside the UN headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland. This event was obviously very traumatic for Millie and her family and had lifelong effects on her. Millie had two other children, Sharon and Robert. Robert had five children and Sharon had just the one, Anthony Small, who is the applicant in this case. At some point, Millie had a major falling out with her son Robert and for many years they had no relationship. It might have something to do with something she mentioned to her legal advisors about excessive debt that Robert had arranged that had nearly bankrupted her businesses, but that's all that was mentioned about it. She also had a strained relationship with her daughter Sharon, which wasn't improved in 2017, when Sharon and Robert discovered that their mother had secretly transferred Lynette's remains from Sydney to a cemetery in Israel. Millie suffered a stroke in April 2018. At the time of the first case, in August 2019, Millie was living in a high-care nursing home with severely impaired cognition. Her children, Sharon and Robert, had been appointed as her financial managers under the supervision of the New South Wales Trustee and Guardian. Now, when I said that Millie was a wealthy woman, I mean very wealthy. Her estate included artworks, a house at Castle Craig, interest in private companies and business investments, and all up was worth about $110 million. For many years before 1992, a company that Millie controlled owned a property at Currajong Heights, known as Northfield. It was about 25 acres with a small, old, well-appointed three-bedroom cottage. 
Well, that's how it's described online. If you've ever wondered what well-appointed means, it means fully furnished, furnished to a high standard, or luxuriously furnished. The property was a gardener's dream, with 10 acres of gardens resembling a botanical garden. The Northfield property was described as a labour of life for Millie, who expended a lot of time and money building up and maintaining the garden. Millie wholly owned and controlled a company called Millstone Health Care Pty Limited. The company owned a commercial property in Bathurst called the Bunnings Property because it was the site of a Bunnings store. The property was purchased in 2016 for $25.5 million and bought in income of about $1.3 million a year. While Millie's capacity to efficiently conduct her business diminished over time, she retained control of her finances until her stroke. Now, as I mentioned at the start, Millie's grandson Anthony has made an application to the court, seeking that the court make a statutory will for his grandmother. But let's have a look at the wills Millie had made during her lifetime. Millie had made a will in 1972 and later made two minor amendments to that will by codicils. She made a second will in November 2001 and the 2001 will revoked the previous 1972 will. So that 1972 will is off the table, it has been revoked and cancelled. And we're left with the 2001 will. The original copy of the 2001 will, however, cannot be located. Millie was heard to say several times after 2001 that she had no will, which may give rise to an inference that she destroyed the 2001 will with the intention of revoking it. The 1972 will was definitely revoked when she did the 2001 will, but the 2001 will has a question mark next to it. I won't go into the 2001 will too much except to say that it did not favour her family as much as her more recent expressions of testamentary intentions. On the evidence before the court in these proceedings, there were reasonable grounds for suspecting that the 2001 will, the original of which could not be found, was revoked by destruction by Millie. In 2017, Millie consulted with various advisors about making a new will, and as a result, a draft will was created. It just happened, though, that Millie never signed that 2017 draft. The draft will would have appointed two solicitors to be Millie's executors and made the following gifts. $5 million to Sharon, which sounds like a fortune to me, but let's remember that this is a, an estate worth $110 million. But nevertheless, $5 million to Sharon, $1 million to each of Robert's five children, $500,000 to Millie's sister, $250,000 to Miss Friedinger, who had been Millie's housekeeper and friend for 25 years, Gifts of artwork to Sharon and her son Anthony, 
$1 million to the Sydney Jewish Museum and a gift of the Northfield property, that beautiful botanical paradise, was to go to Sharon and Anthony as joint tenants. A gift of the Bunnings property to Anthony and the residue of the estate was to go to a charitable trust to be named the Millie Phillips Jewish Fund. Even though both the Northfield property and the Bunnings property were owned by companies and not owned by Millie personally, the draft will provided mechanisms by which the properties would be transferred to Sharon and Anthony without cost to them. One day I will cover a different case in which a will left a property to a daughter, but the property was owned by a company, and the effect of transferring it to the daughter would incur a massive tax liability. So that is to say it is not something to be done lightly, and don't let this case make you think that it can be done easily. But those were the terms of the draft will prepared in 2017 by Millie's lawyers. But when it came time to sign it, she said no. And we'll go into that a little bit more later. Statutory Will Anthony, Millie's grandson, is the applicant seeking the court to make a statutory will for Millie. Opposing him are Sharon and Robert, both in their capacities as Millie's children, but also as her financial managers. There is also a tutor appointed to act for Millie in this case, as Millie does not have capacity to advocate for herself. And there are the solicitors representing each and all of them. So it was a pretty packed house. Anthony served six subpoenas and three notices to produce, to gather evidence about Millie's testamentary wishes, her capacity, how the draft will came to be, and why she didn't sign it. This is all really relevant to the decision the court needs to make about whether to make a will for Millie, and whether that will should be similar to or exactly like the draft 2017 will. And this resulted in a bundle of evidence being given to the court. But once in the court's possession, it was up to the judge to determine whether the parties could have access to any or all of these materials. Justice Lindsay said that the solicitors acting for the tutor and for the financial managers could have access to the bundle of documents, but not Anthony. The solicitor for the tutor was directed to prepare a report summarising the contents of the bundle, and Anthony would only have access to that report. Anthony applied to be given access to all of the documents, but was denied, as the documents related to the personal affairs of Millie. As these proceedings were for the protection and welfare of Millie, this extended to protecting her private information, and given the relative urgency of the matter, giving access to Anthony might cause a delay. So Justice Lindsay determined that Anthony would not have access to all of these materials, which would turn out to be an incredibly relevant decision that we'll get into later. The Court Hearing 
It was recognised that Millie's welfare and interest were the paramount consideration as the incapable person in need of protection, especially as, except for her tutor, all other parties in this matter had a personal interest. Anthony was seeking a statutory will that would make provision for him. Sharon and Robert were opposing this and, if successful, could inherit the entire estate between them. So not exactly unbiased. In making his application, Anthony had to approve to the court that the proposed will he was putting forward was one that Millie was reasonably likely to have made if she had testamentary capacity. Some of the evidence that should be provided in such a case is firstly evidence that Millie lacks testamentary capacity, of course. Why make a will for her if she could make it for herself? So that's the first step. You also need to provide a reasonable estimate of the size and character of the estate, evidence of Millie's wishes, and terms of any wills she had previously made. Way back when, Lord Eldon described it like this, quote, The court looks to the situation of the incapable person, always looking to the possibility of his or her recovery, and never regarding the interest of others, but focusing upon what is likely the incapable person himself or herself would do if he or she were in a capacity to act, considering what the incapable person would probably do and what would be beneficial to him or her should be done. The court does nothing wantonly or unnecessarily to alter the incapable person's property. End quote. The court can consider the evidence of the closest family members, not because they may be in a position to inherit some of the estate, but because they are most likely to know the incapacitated person's wishes and provide evidence that the court needs to make a decision. As I said, the application is to argue that the proposed will put forward is one that Millie would make if she could. So this requires the court to consider what type of woman Millie was and is. Justice Lindsay described Millie like this, quote, Until she suffered a stroke on the 13th of April 2018, Millie appears by nature to have enjoyed a quarrelsome personality, given to bouts of paranoia and apparently erratic behaviour. Fiercely proud of her Jewish heritage, her independence of mind, her commercial success, and her reputation as a benefactor of charitable causes. Family, friends, and professional advisors all alike have not been immune from displays of her strong personality, and occasionally a capricious turn of mind. Those who love and admire her appear to have had sufficient cause to reflect on the adage that one sometimes loves a family member or friend as much for his or her faults as for any virtue. For a long time, Millie sought to control her children's relationship with their father, even after his death. This, and other points of difference between mother and children, led to periods of estrangement or, at least, debilitating emotional tension between them. For many years, she ostracised her son and his family, blaming him for a business venture of her own, which went wrong. Her relationship with her daughter was never so strained 
but never quite free of rocky patches either. She appears to have softened her heart towards her son and his children in the months leading up to her stroke, perhaps falling short of a full reconciliation, but justifying his involvement in management of her affairs in collaboration with his sister. In all of life's challenges, Millie now finds herself in profound need of family as a result of her loss of capacity for self-management. End quote. Millie had told her rabbi about her wish to reconcile with her son, and the rabbi assisted in making that happen. Following her stroke, Millie had contact with her son and her daughter. In applying to the court for a statutory will to be made, Anthony had also put forward some proposed wills that they could make for Millie, and largely based on the 2017 draft will, so we really need to look at it in detail. In March 2017, Millie had a fall and ended up in hospital. Justice Lindsay found that, quote, these events, or a premonition of them, may have reminded her of her mortality as, from about the time of her first fall, she appears actively to have contemplated her testamentary arrangements, end quote. Perhaps it was also this sense of impermanency that also led her to make a substantial gift to Tel Aviv University in Israel. In late 2017, she pledged $15 million to be paid in yearly instalments of $5 million per year. The first payment was made, but Millie lost capacity before the following two could be. For several months, Millie had been meeting with a team of professional advisors, all collaborating in the drafting of her will, culminating in an elaborate draft will completed by May 2017, but a draft will which Millie refused to sign. The estate planning process instead seems to fuel Millie's fear that she was being manipulated by people after her wealth. And in this case, she seemed to have lost trust or faith in her legal advisors. But perhaps not unreasonably so, when you hear what the process looked like. In May 2017, Millie was presented with the completed draft of her will, which she promptly refused to sign. Millie complained that the draft will did not represent her wishes, but the views of others. She sent one of her advisors an email in which she said, quote, If I am your client, when, where did you give your instructions for the nonsense included in your documents? Far from being completed, my will has to be written, probably by another lawyer. It seems that neither you nor your associate can be trusted by me. End quote. The next month, she sent another email with her refusal to pay the legal invoice. Quote, As a lawyer, you should know you have to base your work on your client's instructions. I did not instruct you to take anyone's idea of what my will should be. Most of the work you did, and for which you have billed me, was against my will. You were charging me for two advisors' idea of what my will should be. If you took their advice, look to them. End quote. 
She was warned many times that if she did not have a will, she would die intestate, and her two children, Robert and Sharon, would inherit her whole estate. But even that knowledge did not spur her to sign that draft will. There was a solicitor who had previously acted for Millie. This solicitor's name was Miss Deegan, and she was not one of the ones that were involved in preparing the 2017 draft. But she had been used for business dealings for a number of years. On several occasions, Millie told Miss Deegan that she did not have a will, but she was uncertain about who to leave her property to. On at least three occasions, Miss Deegan warned Millie that if she died without her will, her estate would pass to her children. On one occasion, she told the solicitor that the bunny's property might be too much wealth for Anthony. On another occasion, Millie, she mentioned how she had taken Anthony with her to a business meeting and said, quote, I think I have given him a big head. He was arrogant. I am not sure about any of that th- at the moment. End quote. Returning to the crux of the matter, Anthony was applying for a statutory will, largely in the same terms as the 2017 draft will, and this would see him receive a large portion of the estate, including the Bunnings property and half of the Northfield property. If he was unsuccessful, Millie will have died without a will, and the estate will be distributed on intestacy, which means 50% to Sharon and 50% to Robert. There were a couple of wills put forward as options for the court to choose from, if I can put it that way. Justice Lindsay noted that the family couldn't really agree on any of the options put forward. And while unanimity of family views was not required, it could be a sign that what Millie wanted wasn't really clear to anyone. Quote, The absence from these proceedings of any community of views about Millie's actual or presumed testamentary intentions is a striking feature of the case, a warning to hasten slowly to any attribution of a particular state of mind to Millie, end quote. And I just like to say I love that turn of phrase, to hasten slowly. Love it. Outcome. Anthony had approached this application with an adversarial commitment and provided evidence of his close relationship with his grandmother and of statements Millie had made to him. However, Justice Lindsay found that this evidence fell short of what was required. Quote, A core problem for the plaintiff is that, objectively, Millie deliberately declined to sign the 2017 draft will and, warned that a failure to execute a will would result in an intestacy, she deliberately refrained from signing any will, apparently content to embrace or risk an intestacy, end quote. Further, she had expressed doubts about leaving substantial benefits to Anthony, worried that it wouldn't be wise to give him so much. In the opinion of Justice Lindsay, quote, No proposed form of will Profit for consideration satisfies this criterion. Not even one directed towards giving testamentary expression to an intention to embrace an outcome equivalent to an intestacy 
No testamentary intention attributed to Millie is or is reasonably likely to be more likely than the other. That finding is of itself fatal to the plaintiff's application. End quote. Anthony's application for a statutory will was dismissed at first instance. And that's all I'm going to cover in this episode, but you bet your buns Anthony appealed the decision and we are going to cover the appeal in our next episode. So if you would like to find out, no, actually, I insist, you have to listen to that second episode because otherwise you don't know what happened. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll join me for my next one. Mm-hmm.